microphone to work, Jason, so <laughs> I'm not going to be the technical wizard here. I think that's a perfect way to start right. the podcast right um, there. <laughs> I mean, this is the least I could do because you're doing all this other part, all this other shit. All right. Um, let me get my clock up and... And let's do, we'll just use the stopwatch, and then it will go in the right direction. Um, okay, do you have, no, this is Speak Now or Forever. Do you want to chat a little bit, or you want to, or you want to just dive in? What do you want to do? Well, I think we've already dived in. I think that's fine. I have no okay. idea. Where, I don't have any idea where we're going to start this. When I, when I splice it all together, we can start it and be all formal when, hi, I'm Jason. Or yep. I kind of like some of the outtakes that we already have about the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm going to trust you. You yeah. can use any of this. All right. So, yeah, I mean, I think we should probably just say, like, uh, say your name. I'll say my name. We'll say, uh, and this is the 45-minute hour. Yeah. And, and, then, and, then, um, and then you talk about, like, who the hell you are and your, your training and career. I'll talk about, like, what I do. And then we can go into the rest. Okay. Does that work? So do you want to okay. say who the hell you are gonna, first, or should I? No, no. No, that's why I put you first, so you have to look at my special list. Oh, all right. So I'll go by the list then. So i <laughs> So wait, let me just start my button. Okay, first we'll just say, like, who we are and stuff. All right, uh, just introduce the hour itself. I'm going to press start. Okay, I'm Martha Crawford. And I'm Jason Mahalko. And uh, this is the 45-minute hour. Or 46, as the case may be. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jason, do you want to tell us a little bit about who the hell you are? Sure. Uh, I'm Jason, and I'm a psychologist in Cambridge. And I've been doing this work um, since I was 19 years old, I think. Um, my, my very first practica, or field training, was when I was in college at a rape crisis center. I was all of maybe 18 years old, and I was entrusted to sit with people and somehow be helpful and supportive. Um, and I worked at that a long time. Um, graduated from high school, tried graduate school, wasn't the right thing for me in New York City, worked in group homes in upstate New York, um, came back to Cleveland, worked in community mental health centers, Got a master's degree, um, worked at a free you clinic. Were yeah, worked at a free clinic um, <laughs> as a, a therapist with people who had HIV, and went and got a doctoral degree, and then have been in Cambridge ever since. I like how you went and got a doctoral degree. Like that wasn't uh, like a massive undertaking. <laughs> like oh, and by the way, I got a doctoral degree. Well, you know, we, ca <laughs> we called it the five-year hostage crisis while we were there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's more. That's exactly what it's like. My husband has a PhD, and, mm -hmm. and it was like you know six years of our entire lives being on hold. Um, well, uh, so who the hell I, are you? Who the hell am I? It's a good question. I still am not sure. I um, I was a. Uh, I did not start when I was nineteen. I uh, when I was nineteen, I uh, you know dropped out of my senior year in college and and uh, staggered around the United States for many years, uh, pretending I was an actor, um, and working a bit as an actor, and I ended up in New York City, and thankfully I ended up in psychotherapy, 
And um, and I was, uh, you know, an actress and a, a patient, really, for most of my 20s. And I realized at some point that I was only interested in playing psychotherapists. Mm-hmm. And I started getting all these uh, copies of plays with uh, psychotherapist roles in it. And, and I, you know, decided this was going to be my niche. And then finally I was like, oh, no, wait. Maybe I just want to be a psychotherapist. <laughs> like this was a very, um, you know, illuminating idea to me. And so, at some point, I was in a show and complaining to a really close friend, and that um, I was saying to her how miserable I was in this play. And she said to me, "You know, you don't have to be a therapist." And I was like, "I mean, you don't have to be an actress." And I was like, "What? I don't have to be an actress?" Are you kidding me? I, it was like a brand new idea to me that I wasn't didn't have to commit to this path for life. And literally in a week, I dropped out of every show. And uh, within three months, I was enrolled in social work school. Um, well, I and, didn't know that about you. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. So what was your favorite psychotherapist role that you had? Oh, I don't know that I, you know, I did a lot of monologues. I mean, li- but literally what happened was I think I went to go see The Prince of Tides. Ah. Uh, starring Barbara Streisand as, and I was like, wow, there's an actress who's had a lot of psychotherapy, kind of like me, who's playing a psychotherapist. Like, this is getting very confusing to me. Like, somehow these worlds are converging. It took me, you know, a, a little while. But, but uh, I got my social work degree when I was uh, 30. I worked, uh, my internships were uh, in uh, uh, mental health clinics, day treatment programs, working with what were called, at that point, severely and persistently mentally ill adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked in forensics, uh, where I worked with a lot of deinstitutionalized uh, men and women who had been, um, you know, relegated to state prisons instead of to mental health facilities, um, and mostly because of uh, um, the ways that their, uh, quote-unquote, offenses were racialized and mm-hmm. uh, perceived by authorities. They would be arrested and incarcerated instead of treated. Um, so uh, I spent about four or five years doing that exclusively and then began um, opening uh, slowly my own private practice uh, where I worked with my first clients were almost entirely sex workers and foster care youth. Um, and uh, that was an interesting way to start your career because um, both of them, quite quickly, their their fee structures went from, uh, you know, fairly high, uh, the agency would pay for the foster youth and the, and the sex workers had lots of cash. And so suddenly I had a lot of uh, income that I'd never had before, but suddenly as the sex workers began to enter into therapy, more they worked less. Mm-hmm. And their, their income went down and then my foster care youth aged out. And so suddenly I went, for, like, you know, I had a private practice with no income at all mm-hmm. <laughs> for like uh, a year or so while I was, uh, you know, working part time. Um, and then eventually, um, you know, began to learn how to balance uh, all of that better and, and uh, eventually left agency practice. And so I've been in um, private practice in one way or another for about 20 years now. Wow. Um, and, I'm, and I'm a generalist, and uh, I see adults mostly. Um, I used to see kids, but not so much anymore. It got too heavy and heartbreaking. Mm. Um, but, see, uh, I see teenagers, but not little kids. I'll see old old teenagers. Yeah, <laughs> I need to see old teenagers. But my hair's white because I used to see young teenagers. <laughs> and and uh, as as my own children start to move into adolescence, I, I don't have that much bandwidth. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the things we should explain to people is uh, how we found each other, or how we actually came to be uh, uh, 
having these conversations together. Yeah. I think, um, he, and, I think he found as, me. Uh, yeah, it's funny how we stumble on each other. I mean, I think uh, we were both somewhat connected to uh, a cartoonist who was doing oh, therapy that's right. yeah. cartoons, right? And so I knew you very peripherally through Twitter uh, from this cartoonist who liked both of our works. But but um, but actually, I was had just started a blog, and um, I was thinking about writing a piece about suicide, and I thought, I don't know how I do this. I mean, you started your series. And I was like, oh, thank God, somebody's writing about this. I don't have to. <laughs> and, uh, and I was so moved by um, your stance about it and the clarity and bravery that you wrote about it that I was like, oh, I get this guy. I got to get to know this guy. And, and, uh, and, you know, I think that's when we began corresponding. I think the first time I talked to you was to tell you how... Um, grateful I was that you had written that. And that's when I started to know that our practice and stance was similar. And then over the years, you know, whatever, we, we learned to, we learned where we argue and how we argue well, and that we're both a bit of, uh, we're both willing to argue with each other in, I think, constructive ways. Mm -hmm. And that we also really enjoy arguing with the entire outside world. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and isn't, isn't that Twitter? It's a giant argument it that is. sometimes is it productive is. and and yeah. you have empowered me to freely use the block button and oh I, yes i appreciate that i think my block it's list might be longer than my follow list <laughs> yeah it has to be sometimes it has to be it has to be i think i first i i, I had totally forgotten about the cartoonist um i remember you you were writing a lot about adoption and race and racism and power and exploitation and um, your own really complicated thoughts about that. And I noticed that you, you never, you always have more questions than answers. And I liked that. So many um, folks that I encounter mm -hmm. on social media, have a lot of answers you know they'll have their top five tips or they'll have um, a tool that they think is the best thing ever and I, I appreciated that about you that that you opened up more conversations than you decided all of those like you know 27 steps to happiness or five steps to better sex or all those things yeah, we all should we should all be so happy and having great sex because, you know, we know the steps. Because there's lists. There's lists. Psychologists are publishing lists all over the place. If we just obey their lists, mm -hmm. we'd, all be, we'd all be happy and healthy and well within 24 sessions. Oh, I think within six. <laughs> but, yeah, that, that's, uh, I think, our, our shared uh, crankiness about that kind of, uh, of uh, psychotherapeutic framing and marketing is also part of what... Uh, you know, made us realize that we had a lot to say yeah. to each other and in and, and support of each other. And it so, seems like people want to listen, too. Yeah, well, we'll see. I yeah. mean, let's hope. Let's hope. We'll see. All right, so um, we should talk a little bit about this podcast itself and, like, what does it mean to have two psychotherapists in a 45-minute hour talking about psychotherapy? Um you know, the, the thoughts that I have that people are probably going to be interested in and that, that we thought about that, that we're going to need to explain to people, you know, have to do with uh, confidentiality and uh, privacy and 
uh, how we're going to discuss cases or not, and how like what will it be like what our clients understand or hear that we're um, podcasting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we should probably crack open some of these ideas so that people can understand what they're going to be listening to if they listen yeah. to this. Yeah, I already, I already know that there are clients that are excited to listen to this podcast because I know my clients read my Twitter feed and have already talked about, oh, you're starting a podcast. You haven't been blogging mm-hmm. a lot recently. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to hearing, hearing what you have to say in this new medium. So... I know that clients will listen, and I know that clients that I don't yet have will listen, and mm-hmm. I'm okay with that because I think this is, for me, this is a way that I hope that um, people can get to know me, and mm-hmm. also that um, either people who are in therapy with me and hopefully a whole lot of other people might be able to join in on a conversation about psychotherapy and things that are of interest to psychotherapists and the process of being human. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think, as you mentioned, there's a frame about confidentiality and I'm sure we'll be talking about experiences that we've had in our offices and I'm sure that the two of us will support each other in figuring out how to do that in, in the aggregate. You know, not, right. not specific examples or making up examples that resemble things that actually happened but don't, mm-hmm. don't reveal mm-hmm. something personal to a person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's, I mean, that's certainly a commitment that I made when I first started blogging or entering yep. into social media at all, that in talking about um, specifics, because listen, therapists, Therapists need to talk to each other. Yes. And therapists um, need to, and have been talking to each other since the inception of psychoanalysis and, and psych- the psychotherapies. Yeah. Uh, uh, they just did so in ways that clients, and frankly, they did so in ways that clients could always access. Yeah. You know, uh, Jung's patients and Freud's patients could attend a seminar at the Psychoanalytic Institute and sit and hear what they had to say. What was her so, name, um, Anna? And possibly what was the famous uh, yeah, case? Anna? Anna? Somebody? Anna Freud, his own daughter? Oh, Anna Freud, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, that would be it. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, uh, in one form or another, uh, people have always had access, yeah. right, to yeah. therapists' conversations with each other about the process. Um, uh, you know, more recently, before there was, uh, you know, such things as blogs and internet and social media, the primary way people could access would be by showing up at case presentations at institutes or by subscribing to journals where they may find their uh, cases discussed. But every every theorist that mm-hmm. um, has ever uh, offered a theory to any other uh, psychotherapist, um, you know, has done so. You know, the case of Mr. X. You know, like they they're th- those. Um, uh, cases are how we began to be initiated into the process and learn how to have therapies ourselves and conduct therapies ourselves. So, you know, the, the idea that somehow it's shocking and new for therapists to be talking about their work um, and that somehow because it's available online in some way um, as opposed to obscured behind some uh, journal firewall yeah. seems to me to be uh, false. It's really just about like you know if the client wants to hear what I had to say and pay you know fifty bucks to subscribe to a journal that I attempted to be published in, they could hear it, mm-hmm. or they can read it for free uh, on my blog, or they can 
tune in and listen to the you and I talking um, on the internet. Right. Uh, um, uh, and and you know the thing that I've noticed is that the things that people contact me most about since I started writing publicly are really about impasses with their psychotherapists. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the emails that I get the most are my therapist did this or my therapist doesn't understand that or my therapist um, you know missed an opportunity to X and and uh, I really needed them to Y and they and, and I don't know what to do now. I'm very attached to them but I don't know what to do now. Mm-hmm. And what's really surprising is that you know almost always what I do is I take the email that they've just sent me and I copy it and I send it back to them <laughs> and I say you need to tell your therapist what you just told me. Yeah. And it's a revelation to people that yeah, that's okay totally. um, to enter into that kind of dialogue and talk to a therapist about who they are and how they've failed. And and the more I get those emails, the more I realize the ways that uh, as a the ways that our profession as a as a whole has has really failed to teach clients the ways that they're entitled to talk to us. That that confidentiality and privacy become these veils that somehow therapists hide behind as if they should never be confronted. Yeah. And I don't know if they do it intentionally. Some do. Um, but but somehow the profession as a whole is, is in a state of being hidden um, uh, from their own failures and their own processes. And, and so to me, you know... This kind of transparency is really essential. Well, I think it's uh, so important. We were just having a conversation, you and I, on Twitter the other day about um, things that clients may not bring up to us in yeah. the first few appointments about yep. sex or age or gender or body size or whatever. Or race or, or money or yeah. right. Yeah, and that that so many therapists, it seemed like a revelation to some people who were joining in on the conversation that these are things you can talk about, these are things that you as a therapist can ask, and that's, I I think our profession has failed people. And then I have clients who find that same revelation when I find ways to kind of talk about the ways in which they don't feel authorized to tell people their experience, whether it's telling me their experience or telling a a physician or a friend or a coworker what their experience is. Uh, People, uh, it it surprises me and shouldn't that every time this happens, I am so surprised that people don't know that they can talk. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think it's, it's, it's very hard to teach people, and, and, I, and I suppose not all therapists believe in using the process the way that you and I, in the same form that you and I do. Especially if they um, have a list of 27 steps to happiness. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, part of what you and I are trying to teach people how to do is not to have a polite conversation. Yeah. Right? Like, it, you know, how to have a polite conversation and the ways that we're supposed to edit out all of our anger and all our despair and all of our racial conflicts and all of our financial anxieties and all of our sexual curiosities and hungers and desires and fears and all of our uh, shames about our bodies and all of our primitive envy about like, what we imagine the other person has and what we wish we had. Um, those are things you never talk about in ongoing daily uh, right. you know, interactions. Except perhaps when it's a fight in your most intimate relationship. Yes. And so we're, we're trying to in, in, introduce people to the idea that 
that you're supposed to be talking to your therapist about anything about your therapist that distresses you. <laughs> like, um, and sometimes... Uh, no matter how distressing it may be for the therapist. <laughs> exactly. And uh, especially when it's distressing mm-hmm. for the therapist. That's actually what, the, you know, we actually signed up to sit in this hot seat for some masochistic reason. But we do. We do it. And we do it because it actually, you know, on some level saved our own asses. Yes. Um, when we were, when we were, uh, when we had somebody who did that for us. So, so trying to teach people, you know, that's what happens when people email me is, is uh, you know, I tell them you don't have to have a polite conversation, right? You, you can tell your therapist you're upset with them and you experience them as failed in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and if your therapist accepts that response to that with tenderness and openness and appreciativeness, even if it hurts, even if it stings, even if it takes them a little while to metabolize. Yes. Um, but they actually come back and say, like, that matters to me, and you're being distressed matters to me, then you actually have a healthy psychotherapy in, in your hands. But, uh, you know, if, if you take that confrontation back about race or sex or money or shame or a disconnection or an empathic failure or a, a, an annoyance or an injury that was inflicted in the session, and your therapist abandons you emotionally mm-hmm. in that moment or silences you or erases that conversation, to me, that's a pretty good sign that that's a therapy you should um, start to either confront much more in, in a much more grounded way or perhaps find your way out of mm-hmm. uh, because it's a therapist that's not inviting you yeah. into um, having those conversations. And listen, we're, we have processes too, right? The other thing that was interesting about that Twitter conversation we had the other day is that it was with a young therapist mm-hmm. who was saying... I don't yet know how mm-hmm. to open up these conversations. It, how do you ask somebody about their sex lives if they ha- haven't mentioned them? Um, and it takes a long time to learn how to be comfortable in making those invitations. Because, again, our culture doesn't offer us yeah. uh, that language. I don't it's know about... Daily inter- yeah. In, you know, initiation. Yeah, I don't know about your experience in, in graduate school. I certainly did not have a plethora of people who gave me that invitation, um, whether it be in classes or some of the supervision I had. I, I had to seek out people who were willing to have these conversations. Of course, I was right. that kind of graduate student, as you may imagine, who brought these things up all the time because yes, I am sure. who I am. And I, <laughs> I enjoy talking about things that other people don't want to. <laughs> you know, it was funny. I, I used to go, when I was in social work school, I would go to the library and read all the professor reviews. Mm-hmm. And I would choose all the rev- I would choose the professors that everybody hated the most. Hmm. Right? And, and what they, who they all turned out to be were these, you know, mad old analysts, you mm-hmm. know, like who used to work at... Uh, Cherry Hill, right? You know, I never promised you a rose garden. He used to do psychoanalysis with profoundly ill schizophrenics before there was medications. You know, like these these old, old analysts. And um, and sometimes they were batty, and sometimes they were really brilliant, right? But what they weren't afraid to do was teach us how to, like, have these conversations. Right. Right? And in fact, they would say, if you're not having these conversations, you know, I remember... Uh, a professor I had with this thick German af- a- uh, accent. She was very old, old Freudian. And she said something like, why haven't you asked him about his masturbation fantasies yet? <laughs> 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 and I was like, oh my God. You know, like, I'm, I'm a 28-year-old girl. This is my first year of social work school. I'm in the room with like a, a 450-pound depressed schizophrenic man. I ha- I've just met him. My office is actually an old closet. I'm sitting like underneath 
the bar at the agency, he's, I'm, I'm terrified out of my gourd that I'm pretending to be a psychotherapist, and I haven't asked him about his masturbation fantasies yet. You know, so, um, but I learned, right? Like, uh, and, and it started to teach me, uh, you know, the languages that I was supposed to develop. I remember at one point, once I'd started my private practice, I... I went to my, I was talking to my therapist about a case who was not that engaged, a young, girl, a young woman who was not particularly engaged with me, who was really sort of uh, dating a lot and much more interested in finding a boyfriend than, than, than really being in psychotherapy. And I had this amazing supervisor who, whose spinal column went all the way down to the center of the earth, I think, and who would say anything to anyone mm-hmm. in a way that was both intensely comforting and abjectly terrifying at any moment. And she said, you need to say to this woman... Uh, if I had a penis, do you think you'd come to therapy more often? And I was like, oh my God, I could never <laughs> say that. Right? Like, I could never say that. <laughs> but, it, but it took, um, uh, you know. Uh, you know, I think I sat with it, and I was like, that is really the crux of the issue: is that I'm not. The therapy is not a seductive or titillating or stimulating enough experience for her in terms of what she's seeking out. Mm-hmm. And so I have to ask her about that somehow. And I remember. You know, kind of feeling very quiet and, and my mouth very small, and sort of saying, um, you know, "Do you think if I, you know, were a, 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 a man, you know, like?" And she was like looking at me, and finally, I just said what my supervisor said, and and I remember the client just like, "Oh my God, you're right. I've been devaluing this," mm. and I and I was like, "Oh my God, my," you know, she was right. These terrifying words that seemed so confrontative and so shocking to me at the moment. Now they seem like. I don't know, that's just, that's just uh, you know, I have that conversation 150 times a day now. Yeah. But, but at the time, it was such a terrifying idea. You know, it isn't until just now that it, it dawned on me that those really were the people who made it most okay to talk about anything are old, crusty analysts that have right. been... <laughs> been in my life. You know, I, I, right. I, I think of um, the analysts in my postdoc and the one analytic professor in my graduate school who um, would talk about anything, whether it was and even an analyst in a training situation talking about personal things. Um, yeah, yeah. I remember one woman was, she was saying, well, do you think that analysts don't sometimes use illegal drugs? And she talked about her own experience. I'm like, right. what? Um, and never uh-huh. did I find right. a CBT professor talking about that. Um, yeah. The other people who have taught me to make it okay to talk about everything um, are my first clients when I worked at the free clinic. I remember my very first client um, asked me if I was gay, if I was HIV positive, and if not, who the hell am I to talk to him? Um, And then it got more blunt than that. I had learned through the grapevine that all of my clients would be meeting and having lunch. I worked within a a small community within a big town, so chances are if someone in that era had HIV, they were probably my client. And, um, or at least if they had HIV and they were a client at this particular free clinic. Um, And they were meeting at lunch discussing little tidbits of information they have gleaned in their appointments with me, trying to determine all sorts of things like my sexual proclivities and whether I was single or in a relationship, if I was a top or a bottom, and oh, so (laughs) it occurred to me from a lot of these conversations that people had a lot that they wanted to talk about that I didn't know how to talk about, and they were curious about me in a way 
that showed me that there were things that I wasn't letting them or giving them the space or the invitation to talk about. So, boy, that made me feel comfortable pretty quickly. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I just also know that as a patient that one of the things that was really, uh, you know, frightening for me was the idea that if I actually had some intuitive perception about my, my therapist, that if I said that to him and he negated it, you know, or, or denied it or abandoned me in it, mm -hmm. instead of saying, well, part of that is accurate and part of it's not accurate, or actually I think that's really astute, or actually, you know, I think you're projecting right there, and I think that's from your history, but I'll examine myself and see if it's about me. That that fear that I would be um, that I could have an intuitive experience or be reading the room in a certain way and that that would be just negated mm -hmm. um, was really what was extremely terrifying to yeah. me. You know, yeah. I know in my own history that part of the way that uh, you know I negotiated my own past was by being able to read all the latent content in the room, and I spent years as an actor mm -hmm. studying subtext and what is what ha what happens when somebody says this, but they're actually feeling. This and what happens if you use this yeah. as your motivation and you say this instead? Um, and so, being able to read subtext and latent content, you know, like I, I really needed to know was when it was accurate and when it was not accurate, and how did I, how did you use that in the world, and how do you detangle it? So, you know, when people are having intuitive perceptual experiences of something I might not know about myself, for me to just say, no, 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 I'm a blank slate. That's all about you. You'll just have to figure that out yourself. Um, feels to me like a very profound kind of abandonment. Mm -hmm. um, thankfully, um, you know, m my therapist was um, young and receptive um, and progressive enough in his analytic model that he was, you know, a really good partner in helping me learn how to sort that out. And and I try not to ever abandon clients in that in that sensation. It's, it's very hard to be able to sort out like what your fantasy is of somebody, what you hope they are, what you desire them to be, what you're frightened they are. Mm -hmm. And when you're having an accurate perception in the middle of all of those projections and uh, anxieties. Um, and being able to locate what you can see accurately, um, I think is part of the work. Yeah. And, and, and so, I mean, that's why I've, that's why when clients have questions for me, you know, I'll explore all their fantasies around them, but ultimately, I, as long as they want an answer, I will answer it. Yeah. And then we'll talk about the fallout from that. <laughs> Have you seen these, this online study, or it's a study that is online where they'll just show a segment of people's eyes and eyebrows, and underneath it... Are you saying this because my, my eyebrows are now paralyzed from my... my Migraine Botox treatment? No, they're still really moving, but this, this could lead a problem for your, the people in your life. <laughs> it may be why I'm thinking of it, though, is that conversation. Okay. So there, there's this study where they, they show this segment of, of 20 or 30 different eyes, um, both eyes and eyebrows, and underneath it there are five options of what emotion or experience that person's having, and you're supposed to, to guess. Um, what feeling it is. And it turns out that I got all of them right. Um, ah. I have a suspicion that relationally oriented therapists, relationally oriented people um, are all probably pretty good at that. I think the test is it's... Right, are watching, are watching people closely. Yeah, watching people closely. And, and, and I think of this a lot because a lot of my clients probably would get all of those right. Um, I remember right. when I was a postdoc, I worked with teenagers who were emotionally dysregulated. Many 
consistent with the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And part of that is an incredibly good ability to read the emotions. Um, it was very unnerving to have so many people in my life that would say, you're mad at me. And I would say, no, I'm not. And then I'd say, oh, apparently I am. Oh, I didn't know it. Um, some people are right. so good at reading those emotions that they know it before you know it. Maybe just a fraction of a second. And, and you were making me think about that because ultimately, um, I think to be genuine with my clients, um, I have to be genuine with my own experience in, yes. in ways that are true and validating and um, holding and caring about the relationship and the client. Yeah, Because otherwise, I just recreate the same thing that people's families of origin have of, no, I'm not mad when they're enraged, a parent is enraged or whatever. And That's right. Well, that's going to leave a mark on people. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's left a mark on all of us. Yeah. So, so, um, so I mean, you know, this is also leads into sort of the next, um, uh, you know, bit of discussion that we need to have here, which is, um, you know, why we're doing this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what our uh, goals are. You know, I know that uh, uh, a client I'm working with and, and actually working on a piece that we're writing together with um, is was at one point very frustrated with me for giving things away for free online mm -hmm. um, in terms of uh, uh, blogging and, and being available on social media. Um, and, and it was a really good question about, what, you know, why do I feel the need or the desire or the mission to be able to, to, to process my experience in a way that's public, but more importantly, in a way that I'm hopeful will be generative to other people. Like, why do I need to give more? Or, you know, why, what am I hoping will, will come out of it? And um, and I think on some level, it's like there's, you know, detrius, right? Mm -hmm. Like, from, from all the things we hold, I also think there's um, ways that, as psychotherapists, we can get really isolated, especially when when the sea of uh, uh, discussants out there isn't doesn't necessarily mirror our own experience. Yes. And so there's a part of it that makes me want to advocate for what I believe uh, the processes of psychotherapy can be and should be. Um, and and also, I think because you know there is there are a lot of therapists that need clients to help them learn how to do psychotherapy more deeply. Yeah. And there, there are a lot of therapists who are afraid. And if clients hear these conversations that we have and can bring their need to their psychotherapist, I know there's lots of people out there, the people I've supervised and people who've contacted me, who, who if, you, if you ask them to, if you ask your therapist to go past their limitation, they are securely attached enough to you that they will try to do so. Yes. Um, and and it doesn't mean they always know how to initiate it or they've been well supervised in how to initiate it. But somebody who has healthy enough empathy and has entered the field from that space, um, you know, can be brought into ha having conversations that can be very therapeutic to have even if they didn't know how to start them. And clients are entitled to start these conversations too. So I, mean, I think that's part of also why I want to have these conversations online is to be able to empower people to invite their therapists and their therapies um, to go to the places they really need. The therapists can hear these conversations and try to learn how to enter in more deeply, but the clients have that possibility too. It, you know, in the dyad, we're both responsible for creating the relationship. 
I like that. I I'm mm -hmm. afraid of what's happening to our profession of psychotherapy. I'm afraid that it's it's increasingly more about glue and duct tape. Yes, I agree. And and not about and glue and duct tape, don't get me wrong, is very important. I can teach Absolutely. DBT skills like nobody. But Absolutely. Being able to function in the world matters. Yeah, it's right. glue and duct tape. Um, yeah. You know, when, when, when someone's in that much distress, they need it. And yeah. there's this need for being able to be in a relationship with people and to be able to connect and... Um, connect around the difficult things as well as the good things and to stay in connection when things get difficult that I think psychotherapy has always been able to offer the world and increasingly seems like an afterthought. And as you said, people, a lot of therapists don't know how to do that. Right. Oh, I hope Judy Jordan listens to this. She once was a supervisor of mine when I was a practicum student and I feel like I'm channeling her at this moment about the importance of the relationship <laughs> and it, it's, it's the gift yeah, of the yeah. relational cultural model and of, of Judy yeah, Jordan yeah. and Jean Baker Miller is, is really focusing on those disconnections and ruptures in relationships and, and how That's to right. be present with them and it's not taught that much. That was my favorite thing about learning how to come into this space. Yeah. Right? Was like, this was the moment in my training where I was like, Oh, wait, you mean my fuck-ups are the things that are going to save people, right? Like, oh, wait, you mean the ways that I fail people and then my willingness to be failed and my willingness to, to like, initiate reparation and enter into the processes of repair, like, that I have to fail in order for anything to get better. I'll, I'll, you know, and and moreover, I don't ever have to fail intentionally because I'll just always do it. Yeah, that's. Real, I'm very good at failing. someday we might have to do. <laughs> yes. a, someday we'll have to do a podcast about how we Absolutely. failed at failing. Absolutely, um, that's, I've, that, that's too. I've done that too. Failed yeah, at failing. I've, I've I've been an absolute failure at failing sometimes. And that's, yeah, that's, sometimes you're so good at failing that you still can wear your armor while you're failing. That's right. That's right. It's true. It's true. <laughs> The other like, reason, oh yeah, yeah, I know how to fail, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I got your failure right here. I'll show yeah. you failure. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And and um, uh, you know, I think that's the other thing is that you know, in terms of being on social media, um, and in terms of clients sort of seeing us and hearing us have these conversations, um, you know, there are ways that that will be disruptive, potentially disruptive for anybody who chooses to expose themselves to that, mm -hmm. um, right? That, that uh, you know, there are people who uh, have followed my Twitter feed and felt like it was too much for them and decided not to follow it any longer, mm -hmm. or who followed my blog and felt like it was so excruciating trying to figure out, like, where they were in something I'd written or if they were were present or how they felt about whether they were present or not in something I'd written, that, um, that it became too painful. There are other people who use all of those things um, as really comforting transitional objects or as access to me um, when I'm not present um, and have found that to be um, soothing and useful. So 
you know, there's also the possibility that in and and the reality that we're going to fail here um, as well, or create failures that we will are you know prepared. I imagine knowing you mm-hmm. uh, to be like completely available to talk about with with uh, at least. Uh, our caseload yeah. um, that, uh, you know, hears anything we have to say and is uh, confused or distressed or annoyed or touched by it. So, um, so you know, I think that's, that's the primary mission for when you're on social media as a psychotherapist is that you're going to be willing to process what emerges um, as people have more access to you, including whether or not people are able to self-regulate right. how they expose themselves. Right. Yeah, I've certainly, over the years, some people have told me, oh, I, I started reading your blog post about suicide, and, you know, some people will say, is that okay that I read that? Um, I don't, I don't want don't right. to feel like I'm snooping on you, and my answer is, of course, if it's available online, that means you can read it. Exactly. Um, I've, I've chosen exactly. to put that there. Other folks have told me, you know, I started reading it and it was just too much to bear because I'm, I have these experiences sometimes and then I start right. thinking about how I must make you feel and I, I, right. I, I, I need the space for me and I can't think about right. this other person or, or all this other stuff. And it, it opens up a conversation, which I think is great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think it's also, I, I mean, I've never Googled uh, my therapist mm-hmm. never crossed my mind, um, and there are people that um, you know automatically now in our culture, uh, you know, Google everybody all the time, and I I assume that by ex- existing in the public sphere, people are going to find it and read it, and and but I also feel that you know people need to learn for themselves and and with my assistance sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Like how to self-regulate like you know so many of our clients as you know like are stalking their exes uh right like on twitter and on and have passwords to things they should never have had passwords for and and uh are up in each other's social media business and and being separate and being connected and not being overstimulated and releasing things and not um re-injuring yourself when everything's a click away um is a whole new challenge in self-regulation for everybody in every kind of relationship. Yeah. Right? Parents spying on their children to, you know, to figure out where their privacy and autonomy should, should live. Uh, uh, partners and ex-partners uh, disconnecting and reconnecting and re-exposing and seeing, you know, like how we expose ourselves to this and how we self-regulate is, is a challenge. And I think, um, and I think it's, you know, part of the work of psychotherapy itself uh, and it's fine for me um, if that's also part of the work in, in my direct relationship with clients, how they expose themselves to me on social media. Yeah, it's all grist for the mill. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So is there any, let's see, we're, um, we've decided to frame this, uh, you know, very similar to the way we frame a, a therapy session um, in that this is going to be a 45-minute um, hour. Uh, and we decided a 45-minute hour, not a 50-minute hour, because... Um, that's all that insurance reimburses for now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and so our 45 minutes is coming to a close. Is there anything that you want to say before we need to stop for the day? Well, of course there is, but <laughs> we need to stop for the day. <laughs> we do. We need to stop for the day. Um, uh, we will uh, be back. 
uh, we're I think planning to do this what like twice a month maybe yeah, we'll twice see how a month goes. we'll see how it goes there and, you go and come find us on Twitter if you have stuff that you'd like to hear us talk about absolutely and you can read Jason's blog at the irreverent psychologist and mine is uh, what a shrink thinks That's so right. hopefully we'll be talking with you again in a few weeks all right bye for now bye for now